It's an honor to be here. And because you mentioned I'm also an author and a military historian, and it is Remembrance Day, and this year it's on Shabbos, and so many ceremonies where Jewish people would go now outside in front of Senatovs, that's not going to happen. In fact, this year, for the first time in many years, um, there won't be a Jewish rabbi, there won't be a rabbi in Ottawa doing the benediction because they didn't accommodate and they didn't even make a film about it for him this year, which is a sad thing. This is the same rabbi who was threatened with death last Friday, Rabbi Idan Sher, uh, in Ottawa by the anti-Semites who called him uh, threatening him as a Zionist with death. It all seems like such a long time ago. World War II ended in 1945. Um, and World War I over a hundred years ago. And uh, I know that here in this room, there are probably those of you for whom these wars are very important in your family's heritage. Could you show me hands, anyone who has, first of all, is a veteran, is a veteran of any war, and secondly, more likely, anyone that has had a veteran in their family who served for Canada or other allied uh, countries during the past wars. So I thought there would be, I want to thank you on behalf of all Canadians for their service. Um, but I need to be honest with you. When Rabbi Wernick said to me, uh, you know, please come and be our guest speaker, this was a long time ago. And then October 7th happened. And I honestly, I didn't feel like I should even come here and talk to you today because uh, what can I say about a war that ended 108 years ago that would be relevant when our anxiety now, our worries, our fears, our grief is laser focused on what's happening in Israel. And some of you for sure have relatives, family, even maybe children who are serving in the IDF right now, right? And we're focused, of course, on those troops with Canadian connections, including Johanna Dov Levenstein, hope I pronounced your last name right, whose father, late father, um, Michael Levenstein, Dr. Levenstein, was from Toronto, and he was killed last week. He's 23 years old. He just got married two weeks before, fighting near the Gaza Strip. But I decided that I needed to speak to you because what we're seeing now has very scary parallels to what the Jewish boys of Toronto and Canada were going through back in 1938, 1939, when the Second World War broke out. Because back then, Jews were not welcome in Canada, not as refugees. And you all know the late Dr. Irving Abella, Professor Irving Abella from this congregation, wrote the seminal book called None is Too Many, which for those of you who aren't familiar is what the Canadian government's official policy was about allowing Jewish refugees from Germany to come to Canada during the years before and up to and including the Second World War. Jews were not accepted at U of T's medical school. Sound familiar to today? Uh, there were quotas. They couldn't all uh, enlist, uh, enroll, I should say. Businesses were being boycotted, just like the Indigo bookstore on Bay Street and Bloor two days ago was defaced because Heather Reisman is Jewish and supports the owner of Indigo, supports Israel. They couldn't get, Jews couldn't go to golf clubs, which is why my beloved grandfather and his friends were at a new golf club called Oakville, right? Um, 
Oakdale because they had to form their own golf club. And I could go on. And there were the Christie Pitts riots of 1933 when swastika bearing youth clubs roamed the streets of the beaches and Toronto and then beat up Jewish kids. And there was the largest race riot in Jewish in Canadian history in 1933. And tomorrow, the very same Christie Pitts location is where the rally for Israel is going to be held. And I'm sure Dafka they did it on purpose because that's where the Jews fought back against the Nazis and that's where Toronto's Jews are fighting back against anti-Semitism and the new Nazis, the Amaleks of today. And just like Yohonatan Levenstein, Zichron Olivracha, Canada's young men and Jewish women, of course, also signed up in 1939 because they knew that they were fighting a tyrannical army bent on wiping out the Jewish nation. The worst enemy of the time of the Jewish people. And although, to be fair, most of the young boys and men who signed up that were going to Harvard Collegiate or Central Tech or commerce, or some of the schools where in the Kensington Market area, College and Bathurst, which is where many of the Jewish families lived in those days, because this is where the predecessor to this synagogue was located, was down on University Avenue. It was called Goel Tzedek before you guys built this synagogue. This very synagogue was desecrated by vandalism in 1938. I'll tell you about it in a minute, but the boys who signed up could not have known the extent of the atrocities that would lead to the murder of six million Jews because they didn't know until the Allied landed in Normandy in June of 1944 and, and then pushed back through occupied German-occupied Europe, which if you're watching All the Light I Cannot See on Netflix, gives you a beautiful picture right now of what it was like for young people. Anyone watching it? Yes? Okay. Um, Episode two only, don't tell me. Um, and the Nazis' tactics have been borrowed by today's Amalek. The Hamas, the ISIS, slaughtering families together, burning babies, need I go on, as they were doing the ethnic cleansing of Jews from Europe. Except today, Hamas calls it from the river to the sea. But it's a clarion call to wipe out half of Europe's Jews, half of the world's Jews, I should say, nine million of us who live in Israel. So back then, the Canadian Jewish soldiers, there were about 20,000 of them who signed up in 1938 until 1945. They were fighting for democracy, for freedom from tyranny, and unlike the rest of the million Canadians in uniform who served, the Jewish boys and 270 women served to save their people from the final solution, from Hitler's Holocaust the destruction of the Jewish people, because nobody else was going to do it. Nobody stopped Kristallnacht, which was you know, 80, 88 years ago this week in uh, Austria and Germany. Nobody wanted to bomb the tracks to Auschwitz. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president of the United States, did not tell the Allied planes to stop and bomb the tracks to save Jews. As I told you, the Canadian military did not do anything to save Jews. So what I'm going to do today, besides drawing scary parallels to what it was like for Jews here in Canada at the same time as we're now going through this here ourselves, is to remember those Jewish boys who served in the First and Second World Wars, whose stories are told so beautifully in the four panels outside, which I really highly recommend you see. They're right near the balloons. And I'm going to introduce you to two 
of those brave veterans, soldiers, whose families were pillars of the Jewish community, members of Beth Sedek, or had ties to Beth Sedek. And I want to thank Lorne Hanek, your ritual director, because when I was researching for the book, he kindly sent me a spreadsheet outside the walls of where those red ribbons and balloons are. On one of the walls is a plaque, and I highly recommend that you go look at it. It's called Debate Alpha Lobby, I think. And it has a list. It was designed by one of the group of seven artists, okay, A.J. Casson. And lots of churches and synagogues and community centers and schools across the country got one. And it listed everybody in that congregation who fought and died for Canada. It's called War Veterans for King and Country. It's in alphabetical order. There are about 400 names on that scroll right here, which to my knowledge is either the largest group of Jewish soldiers in the country from one place that went or maybe the second largest because maybe Shar Shemayim in Montreal sent more FYI but not much so I'm pretty sure it's either the top or number two and they were from Gold Sedek of course which I told you was the precursor as you all know and Rabbi Samuel Sachs was the rabbi of Beth Sedek's predecessor Gold Sedek at the time when it was on university. And he made headlines in the Globe and Mail because Rosh Hashanah was when, you know, everyone comes to shul. If you don't go Shabbos, whatever, but everyone shows up for the high holidays and the First World War broke. I didn't mean that. Everyone should come all the time. <laughs> but realistically, so it was Rosh Hashanah when the Second World War broke out in September of 1939. And the sermon from the pulpit encouraged all the families and their boys and the men to go and sign up and do their duty. And there was never any doubt Canada was going to mobilize, but this is what he said, Rabbi Sachs. I want to read it to you. And he ended up being a chaplain as well. He said, quote, It's a battle upon the outcome of which depends not alone our future physical survival as a people, but the survival of everything that makes us worthy of the treasured name Israel, champion of God. In this battle... Not one of us dares to stand selfishly aside. Jews are ready to contribute more than their share in this war to the end, so men may once again live without fear and oppression. From the Globe and Mail, from this very rabbi of your congregation, and it was a rallying cry because Beth Sedek's um, in June of, 20, of 1938, so just a few months before Kristallnacht, your shul building was desecrated by Nazi sympathizers. I don't know if you knew this. In the newspaper reports, during the night, the vandals broke in and desecrated the Torah scrolls. They ripped the scrolls in pieces and scattered the Torah scrolls all over the shul. No one was injured. And Rabbi Sachs told the police that it was likely fascist sympathizers who did it. He also was the target himself. His office received a letter in the mail with a bullet with a painted swastika on it. Think about that, if you got one of those. He quickly reported it to police. Seriously eerie times back then that I'm getting goosebumps thinking about now because this is what's happening in Canada and around the world to Jews, which is why so many Jewish boys, 40% of all eligible Jewish men in Canada enlisted 
in Canada for the Second World War, about 17 to 19,000 men. You have to remember, Canada's Jewish population was 168,000 at that time. That's less than live in Toronto now. That was the whole country. That was a lot of people that went because it was their war, if it was anyone's war. Yet they went at great personal risk because if they were captured by the enemy, their own fate would be very dark. Indeed, they'd be killed as Jews too. I want to remind you of that plaque that we had uh, talked about a minute ago. Some of the names may be familiar to you. They were pillars of the Jewish community who served. Breslin, Kroll, Senator David Kroll, first Jewish cabinet minister in Ontario. Samuel Factor, first Jewish member of parliament from Ontario. Florence, Gilbert, he was a um, flying officer. He was president of the synagogue's junior congregation. John Glass, former Jewish politician. Albert Glazer, Hornick, Pullen, Romberg, Rotenberg, Sobel, Sam Snyderman, Sam the record man. David Smith, he won the Distinguished Flying Cross. He was at the Gold Sedek Hebrew School. Ray Wolf. And one of them that you should know about, which I'm going to tell you a little bit today, is David, uh, Ben Dunkelman, Canada's most highly decorated Jewish soldier from the Second World War from the Army. Anybody know the name? Ben Dunkelman? Excellent. Those of you who don't, he won the Distinguished Service Order. He wasn't just a hero because of his local connections. His family was a very Zionistic family. They ran tip-top tailors, and they also had that big building down on the waterfront, which you maybe see when you go down on the lakeshore. That was their factory. On the Second World War, broke, when the breakout of the Second World War, Ben Dunkelman nearly didn't even get to put on a uniform and, or fire a single bullet. He was working with his family's business. He had graduated from Upper Canada College. They were a very privileged family. They lived on where Sunnybrook Hospital is now. They had a 35-acre mansion. He had a yacht up in the Muskokas called Ginny, which he could sail. And he'd already done a gap year in Israel. Actually, it was three. He extended it, where he worked as a pioneer in an orange grove on a kibbutz. And he came home to work in the family business because his parents needed him. And when the war broke out, he went down just around the corner to HMCS York, which is where the Navy office was, to sign up because he knew how to sail, right? And it was his duty. He said that he wanted to go because it was his duty as a Canadian. Nine months went by and they never called him. Why? He learned eventually was because the Navy wasn't taking Jews because they were very, very British and very, very colonial, you know, and they just thought Jews didn't belong in the officer's mess of, or wardroom, as they called it, on, on ships. And also, they wanted people who were white and Protestant. So in this day and age, we would call that, they'd need to go to a diversity and equity course, would they not? And that would not fly today. But of course, so in, I'll tell you how few Jews went in the Navy. Out of the 17 to 19,000 Jews who served, the Navy only had 600 Jews. And it wasn't because Jews can't swim. That's the joke, but it's not true. Most were in the, in the Army, 10,000, and 6,000 were in the Air Force. And so what did Ben Dunkelman do? He decided, 
I'm going to get there by hook or by crook. And he enrolled in the Army. It's called the Queen's Own Rifles, which is a frontline unit right close to the, um, the sharp end of the stick, as they say. And his family was not enthusiastic. His parents were like, we need you here. What are you doing? But he told them, quote, I had a score to settle with Hitler. And he'd finished his training, and he was on board a ship to England, and he nearly got sent to prison. So he never even nearly made it overseas. Why? Because he got the mumps on board. Like, we would get COVID. No one wore masks, and the mumps broke out, and he got sick. So when he was in the hospital in England convalescing, the radio was on, and everyone was listening to the news. And another guy who was um, convalescing said, when Hitler was finished doing what he was doing to the Jews in Europe, he should go to Canada and wipe out all the Jews in Canada. Now, Ben Dunkelman was nearly 300 pounds and way, way over six feet. He was a large man. And he was enraged when he heard that patient. And he jumped out of bed and tried to strangle the guy. But then he stopped because he realized that I needed to go and kill Hitler, not sit in a jail somewhere in England for the rest of the war. And so he pulled himself back and continued. And he started as a private where they earned $1.30 a day, which is why they used to call it a buck private. And he ended up being a major. He became a mortar specialist. The, the newspapers loved him. They called him shoot a million Benny or base plate Benny because he would fire, have his guys fire 22 mortars instead of the usual one, which was recommended. And the people who were in charge of the supplies didn't like him that much because he basically used up all their ammunition <laughs> as quickly as he could. But he was fearless. He was protective of his men. And in the forests of Germany in March of 1945, where the Canadians were on their way to capture Berlin, and end the war, the Germans were well dug in, and it was called the Balberger Wald, a forest. So when his company started to cross the road, they got fired on by machine guns that were hidden on all sides, and it decimated his troops. Enraged, because you remember he had a bad temper, what happened on the ship, and then when he got home, uh, got to England, this Canadian soldier leapt out of the cover, grabbed a portable machine gun that's called a Piat machine, and single-handedly took out the machine gun nest, and then he killed 10 Germans with his bare hands and a pistol and opened the road so his men could advance to their position. They said, quote, he went berserk, unquote. And he won the Distinguished Service Order for that day. After the war, he never talked about that much, that, that episode. Maybe today you'd call it PTSD. But he came home, and he went back to work in the business, and then Israel was in danger. 1948, he couldn't stay away. He was the first Canadian to smuggle himself back to Israel with a fake passport to help the fledgling Jewish army defend the new Israel state and the exploits that he did there made him a commander of a, a unit, the 7th Brigade, where they captured Nazareth. Then they captured the Galilee. And I, I'm going to shorten it because we, our time is running short. But he was highly decorated, and Ben-Gurion wanted him to stay and be in charge of the whole brigade. But he came home, set up his life here, 
He was married, he had many children, and then he sold the business, opened an art gallery, and he died in Toronto where he's buried a war hero for two wars, not just one. He was old by the time he got home. He was in his mid-30s. Another person who's on that list that you should know about did not come back. He was also oldish in his mid-30s. His name was Harry Bachner. And I know his relatives here in the synagogue often say Kaddish for him because he was one of the last Canadian Jews who were killed in the war. He served through almost six years of the fighting and within two weeks or three weeks left, the war was going to be over. He was shot trying to help one of his men cross the Isel River in Holland, shot near a barn by the Nazis who were told to fight until the last man, even though Hitler would be dead within a week and the war would soon be over. And he's pretty famous because of the fact that he wrote 1,300 letters home, one for every single day of his service. He was a playboy when he started. Okay, he had red hair, playboy. He was working in the fur business, a little, quote, black sheep of the family type guy. And yet, when he, the war broke out, he enlisted with the Toronto Maple Leafs owner, Con Smythe, had a unit, and he trained with them, played sports with them up in Petawawa before going overseas. He spent... 18 months fighting in the trenches, in the, in the mud of Italy, and then was sent to Holland to finish the war. He enlisted on Erev Yom Kippur, just so you know. He was a proud Jew, if not a religious one. The problem was that they didn't have kosher food, so he had to eat P, and this is what he would write in the letter, P blank blank K, because he didn't want to bother like his parents, you know, that they should know that he's eating treif in his letters. And he had to fight anti-Semitism, as most Jews did. Because when his men were saying to him, oh, but the Jews run Eaton's, don't they? Now, Eaton's was like a famous department store in Canada before it closed, like a big, big one, like the Bay. And he would tell them, no, Jews don't run Eaton's. In fact, Eaton's wouldn't hire Jews. So he died April 11th, 1945, and is buried in Holland. And for the last 25 years, your congregation members who are his relatives, his great nephews, uh, Elliot Schiff, his wife, and the brother Jonathan, who lives in Israel, have been on a mission to learn more about him through the letters. They translated, they scanned the letters, I should say. They're going to maybe make a movie about his life. It's a treasure trove. He's probably the most prolific letter writer home about what it was like to be a Jewish soldier fighting for, to save his people um, that I've ever encountered. And he didn't think he was going to come back. In his last letter home to his sister Molly, they lived on Braemar Gardens in Toronto. This is what he wrote. And this was like a few days before he was killed. Even though the war feels like it's at an end, you're not there till you're done, you know? And I'm not sure. Last year, Elliot and Jonathan went to Holland on a group called In Our Father's Footsteps. And they went to retrace Harry's, their great uncle's footsteps, who they'd never met before. And they went to his grave, and they brought earth from Jerusalem and stones from Toronto to put on his grave. And I asked, why does it matter? Why did you need to do that to this guy who you never met, who nobody's going to remember? Why did you do that? And Jonathan said something I want to end with for you, 
because it's about the significance of memory. Does it matter to Harry, Jonathan told me? Does it matter to be remembered that we did this for him? I feel like it does. I feel like it does. Maybe somewhere he knows that we did this. And for us and for our children and our grandchildren, I think it's important that he be remembered. His sacrifice be remembered. Harry was a hero. A little rough around the edges, became such a more mature and introspective man. The war changed him, and it would have been amazing to see what he would have been like had he come back. And his family is also famous because his uncle, Lloyd Bachner, was in the Navy, and he was also a movie star in Hollywood. He was in, da in Dynasty in the movie TV series of the 80s. His son, Hart Bachner, was in Die Hard. He was the obnoxious Jewish lawyer that got killed. That was his son. Um, and maybe Hart was named after his uncle, Harry. So on the shoulders of these gentlemen, these 20,000 Canadians who served of Jewish faith in World War II, 5,000 in World War I, and the brave IDF soldiers that you just mentioned, they are fighting on the soldiers of our World War I and World War II heroes, the members of your congregation. And so I urge you to visit the exhibit, read the names on the wall, and thank you for the opportunity to remember these Jewish soldiers, heroes of the past, who are tackling today's version of Amalek. Thank you very, very much.